This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. The Black Museum. The repository of death. Yes, here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a skillet, a screwdriver, a photograph, all are touched by murder. Here's a 22 caliber pistol. It's a familiar object. You've seen one or its picture. You've never touched one. An elegant little weapon, blue steel, Mother of pearl inlaid grip, beautiful in its dainty, snub-nosed wickedness. A lady's weapon, wouldn't you say, Pepper? Looks as if it wouldn't harm a fly. Pretty in its way, Inspector. Pretty and dangerous. There ought to be a law forbidding the manufacture of these toys. Every one of them is capable of death. Well, today, this little blue twenty-two can be found among the exhibits in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. In just a moment, you will hear the Black Museum starring Orson Welles. Museum starring Orson Welles. Well, here we are in the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. It's an impressive place. And the kind of echoing awe which comes from a vaulted ceiling and somber lighting. Weird, fantastic, with a harsh, real fantasy that comes with murder. Here lies death, and so neatly. Each object placarded with a small white card labeled with black lettering, name, place, date, disposition of the case. Here's an odd-looking ashtray, soapstone. It's carved rather nicely with a crouching figure of a woman. Something decorative for your living room, but observe closely now the red-brown stain on the rim. Lift up the tray, hold it by the figure of the woman. Well, yes, it's comfortable in your hand, and suddenly, this is a weapon. Ah, here we are, a little blue 22. Well, it's silent now. It was silent, too, during Vivian Davis's cocktail party in London's smart, sophisticated West End. In Vivian's quite shishy apartment. It was not destined to be silent, though. Not very long. It's a nice place, Vivian's apartment, if you go for ultra-modern glass and metal combinations. Nice people, too. Well, nice-looking, anyway. Young men are quite, quite impeccable. The young ladies are lovely, lush, well aware of the well-put-together attractiveness. Oh, yes, these are the chic young people. <laughs> Larry, 
Darling, have you been watching Vivian and Donald? Oh, what else, sweet? They are at dagger points, aren't they? Well, frankly, Larry, if Viv has one more martini, she'll kill Donald with a look. An alcoholic look, at any rate. But why all the fuss and bother? If Donald wants to play, she ought to let him. I know at least three males were perfectly willing to give Viv a time, really. Mm -hmm. Including yourself, Larry, my sweet? No, darling, I'm the fourth. But then why bother? A trifle strange, isn't it? The ultra-sophisticated, the over-civilized, and yet, you know, beneath the polish, the same old jealousy that you can find in savages. Oh, yes, simple jealousy. For instance, at this moment, Vivian herself is approaching the chrome and plastic bar where Donald is mixing a drink. Donald, haven't you had enough? You're quite tight, you know. Am I, really? I asked you, Donald, haven't you had enough? I don't believe I have. Uh... Will you have one, dear? I've had enough, let me tell you. Uh, this is my party. You might be polite enough to pay some attention to me and a little less to that strawberry blonde. Ah, she's quite attractive in a leggy sort of way. Oh, yes, quite elemental beneath the polished surface. An interesting situation. It continues, of course, as long as the party lasts. <laughs> continues, as a matter of fact, well past the end of the party, even to the moment when May and Larry are making their farewells, the last of the guests to go. Oh, it was simply marvellous, Viv, darling. Just delightful. I always adore your parties, Viv. The liquor flows like water. Oh, thank you both for coming. My little parties wouldn't be the same without you. Isn't that so, Donald? Huh? Yes, uh, yes, of course. Coming, Donald Lowson? Well, I don't exactly... Oh, Larry, uh, please. What? Oh. Put my foot in it, haven't I? I'm sorry, old man. Au revoir, Viv. Let the martinis run again sometime soon. Bye, darling. Ring me, won't you? Oh, soon, darling. Quite soon. <laughs> Donald's for it now. Did you see the look in her eye? Come along, dear. Don't be catty. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the party's over now. Silence descends on the carpeted hallway for a moment or two. And then, through the muffling walls... You stupid little, silly little beast on that woman. Oh, stop it, Viv. I'm not interested in her. I've so turned to look like a perfect idiot. Man versus woman. A jealous woman. Where does it go? Isn't it obvious? Of course. Somebody's bound to be hurt. Inspector Summers and Detective Pepper arrive quickly from the yard. This seems to be the weapon, Inspector. A twenty-two, blue steel, mother-of-pearl grip. A lady's weapon, wouldn't you say, Pepper? Looks as if it wouldn't harm a fly. Pretty in its way, Inspector. Pretty and dangerous. There ought to be a law forbidding the manufacture of these toys. Every one of them is capable of death. Funny. What is? The body, out here. On the landing. Yes. Well, we'll find the reason for that shortly. Not much blood. Twenty-twos don't make much of a hole. Uh, stay here, Pepper. I want the pathologist to see the body before it goes to the morgue. You know the procedure. I'll be inside with the uh, prime and only suspect. Yes, sir. I understand. Tell me how it happened. Don't you dare to talk to me like that. Take hold of yourself, Miss Davis. I need the answers to a few questions. I'll answer that. Don't you dare. That's my telephone. Yes? No. This is Inspector Summers of Scotland Yard. I see. I'm sorry, Lady Munsey. You can't speak to your daughter just now. Yes. She'll be coming down to the yard. You can come there if you wish. Goodbye. Now will you leave me alone? You know who my mother is. Which do you prefer, to answer my questions here or to come down to the yard? I refuse to answer anything. That won't look well in the report, miss. Oh, get out of here. Get oh, out. Take no. hold of yourself, Miss Davis. I told you and told you. Donald and I were arguing. I suppose I grabbed the gun from under the pillow where I keep it. He tried to take it away from me. And next I knew there was a shot and he was mumbling something about a doctor. And then... 
that he was dead. So now leave me alone. Leave me alone. Inspector Summers felt that further questioning was indicated. The location he chose was his own office at the yard. Where did you get the gun, Miss Davis? My husband gave it to me several years ago. Are you married? I was. I'm divorced. Inspector Summers thought of many questions. Where did you struggle over the gun? In the bedroom. I see. Why do you use linoleum for a floor covering in the bedroom? Oh, because it's easy to keep clean and because it's chic and because... Oh, what has that to do with Donald? I'm asking the questions, Miss Davis. Oh, yes, there were many, many questions. How long have you lived at that address? How long did you know Donald Martin? Have you ever bought any ammunition for that gun? What were you quarreling about? It went on and on. And finally... Very well, Miss Davis. We shan't hold you. But don't leave London. And uh, your mother is waiting for you. You'd better go home with her. We are sealing your apartment. <laughs> An inconvenient matter, violent death from a gunshot wound. Apartments are sealed, people investigate. One's whole life is turned inside out. And then there are the experts. The scientific facts contradict some of Miss Davis's statements, Inspector. They do? For instance? There's no evidence of any scorching of the clothing around the bullet hole. From that fact and the spread of the smoke stain, I deduce that the gun was held from three to six inches from Martin's chest. As the blood ran down the chest, he must have been standing at the time. It would be practically impossible for him to hold the weapon himself in that position. Could he have clutched the barrel, say, in an attempt to take it away from Miss Davis? In that case, his fingers would be singed, or at least blackened. They're not. I do not believe that the man was touching the weapon at all when it was fired. An embarrassing conclusion, to say the least. There were other things. I've checked Martin's shoes at the morgue, Inspector. Well? If they struggled in that bedroom, on that polished linoleum floor, his shoes would have had to scratch the floor. They're leather-soled, and they have metal taps on the tips. Very good. Another discrepancy. Now, uh, Pepper, I think we'd better have a bit of a talk with the neighbours. Are you certain of that, Mrs. Merritt? I am positive. It's not the first time they yelled at each other, those two. And the walls are thin. Do you have it down, Pebble? Yes, sir. They had a quarrel about two weeks ago. He left. She leaned out of the window, only half-dressed, and shouted at him, Laugh, baby, laugh for the last time. And then she fired a gun at him. Thank you. Now then, Mrs. Merritt, before the shot last night, uh, did you catch any of the words they said? His? Oh, no, sir. But, well, her bedroom is next to mine. And I heard her say, as clear as day, and at the top of her lungs, I will kill you. Thank you, Mrs. Merritt. Anything else? No, sir. Very well. Uh, let's go, Pepper. All right, Pepper. I think we have the makings of a case. Pick her up. We'll book her for willful murder. And today... The little blue 22, which was to play such an important part in the case, can be seen among the other exhibits in the Black Museum. In just a moment, we will continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. Thank you. 
And now we continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. As the inspector said, they felt they had a case. The evidence was piling up. Vivian Davis was arrested. Her defense counsel was a distinguished member of the bar, and the prosecutor assigned was no less brilliant. But some of the conversation about the case was, was, well, a lot less brilliant. Why, if Larry and I had stayed, we might have seen the whole thing. And darling, those letters. Imagine leaving letters like that lying in your bureau drawer where anyone might find them. And do you suppose the prosecution will use them for evidence? <laughs> this is one trial I simply shall not miss. Let me say here and now, if May owns a gun, I'm walking out, and at once. But Viv always was unstable, you know. That's the kind who'll pull a gun on you when you least expect it. Not for me, old man. Not for me. I always said she was no better than you'd think. Wild parties at all hours, firing guns around, drinking. Oh, I dare say the woman wasn't happy. But then who is? Now I ask you, who is? Poor Viv. I understand the food in prison is all starches. Seen the headlines? This is a juicy one, what? I'm to be a witness? You don't say. Really, now, you don't say. They tried the case in public gossip long before it came to proper trial. And when the proper trial began, the courtroom was crowded naturally with bright young women and polished young men, the familiars of the defendant. This, however, failed to ruffle the solemnity of a British court. I shall permit no demonstrations. At the least lapse from proper decorum, I shall have the courtroom cleared. And that settled that. The trial proceeded. Vivian Davis, in simple black, sat in the dock between the two wardresses assigned a guarder. On the witness stand, the pathologist repeated his evidence and his conclusions for the prosecution. There was no cross-examination. With Inspector Summers, it was another matter. Inspector, you heard the prison doctor testify that when Miss Davis was admitted to the prison after her arrest, he found bruises on her arms and on one thigh. Yes, sir. And that such bruises might have been sustained in a struggle. Yes, sir. Very well. Now then, in your experience, have you found that when one person handles a gun, that person's fingerprints are usually found on the weapon? That has been my experience. However, if two parties struggled for possession of a certain weapon, would there be fingerprints? In most cases, no, sir. They tend to smudge or eliminate each other's prints. This weapon, which you've identified and which has been entered in evidence as Exhibit A, did you find this weapon at the scene of the alleged crime? I did. Did you examine it carefully? I did. Did you have it tested for fingerprints? I did. Did you find any? Yes, sir. How many sets? Only one set of prints were on that gun. Whose were they, Inspector? Now tell the jury, please, whose fingerprints were on that gun? Only my own. One more point, Inspector. You stated that you found a bullet in the wall of the bedroom. Correct? Yes, sir. Have you any reason to believe this bullet was fired on the night of the alleged crime? It could have been fired at any time, I suppose. Thank you, Inspector. That's all. Mrs. Merritt, the eager next-door neighbour, had her proverbial day in court. Yes, sir. Just as I told the inspector, she screamed at him, hanging out of the window only half-dressed, and then she fired a shot at him. Counsel for the defence spent little time in the cross-examination of Mrs. Merritt. Madam, did you actually see Miss Davis fire a pistol or gun of some sort at the deceased? I heard the shot after she yelled at him. You said she was only half-dressed at the time. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Then you must have seen her. Well, I took one look, and after that I only listened. Why? Why, Mrs. Merritt? When a woman is in her condition, no other woman cares to watch her. I see. This is your opinion. It certainly is. Your Lordship, I respectfully request that the answers to the last two questions be stricken from the record as constituting an opinion and not evidence. Further, on the grounds that opinions are not warranted, as the witness is not qualified as an expert. Well, 
clerk will strike the last two answers from the record and the jury is instructed to ignore the testimony. Uh, proceed. No further questions. Thank you, Mrs. Merritt. Back and forth, the battle raged, a battle for a woman's life. The case for the Crown was ably presented. The defense, by cross-examination, by objections in the record, sought to upset testimony to establish points which could be played upon later, the climax of the trial, when Vivian Davis herself took the stand in her own defense. Now, Miss Davis, you understand the seriousness of this situation? Of course. I refer to the testimony that you once fired a gun at Donald Martin from your bedroom window. Is this true? No, it's not true. What did happen that evening? He'd come to see me. He'd asked me for money to pay a gambling debt, and I refused. We quarreled, and he left. I was furious, and I called to him from my window. Then I went back into the room and fired one shot to make him think I'd kill myself. What happened then? Oh, Donald... Mr. Martin came rushing back, and we... We were friends again. Miss Davis, have you ever pointed a weapon at Mr. Martin? No, never. Have you wanted to? No, never. Did you shoot him the night he died? No! Have you any recollection of his having spoken to you between the time he was shot and the moment he died? I'll never forget it as long as I live. What did he say? He said, I wish the doctor would hurry. I, I want to tell him that this was an accident. It's not your fault. He said it over and over. And then he was... Dead. Thank you, Miss Davis. Your witness. Pull yourself together, Miss Davis. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, very well. I submit, Miss Davis, that the truth of your first public quarrel is as it was stated by your previous witness that you did fire out of your window at Mr. Martin. Oh, no, never. I fired in the room. I wanted to frighten him. Miss Davis. Is this your pistol? Yes. Is this the weapon which killed Mr. Martin? Yes. And on the night this gun, your gun, killed Mr. Martin, you had a quarrel, a second quarrel. Yes. You were, to put it simply, jealous of his behavior with other women. Oh, I was so jealous, I threatened to kill myself. You threatened to kill yourself? Yes. Then why did you shout, I will kill you? No, 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 I never said that. What did you say, Miss Davis? I, I never said I'll shoot myself. The other, I never said. Why should I? I was jealous, but that was because I loved him. Oh, you've got to believe me. I loved him. I did. I did. There was more, much more, over and over. But they never managed to shake her on the essential points. I never pointed a gun at Donald in my life. And, of course... I never said I'd kill him. I said I'd kill myself. At long last, with Vivian Davis on the verge of collapse, the prosecutor let her go. Shortly thereafter, the defense rested. Summations were brief. For the prosecution? This woman is guilty of the crime with which she is charged. There is no doubt in our minds... Nor should there be any in yours that she held the pistol and fired the shot. For the defense? It is clear that no woman kills the man she loves, despite the violence of their causes. This was an accident. It is clear that it was an accident. The presiding justice was clear and concise in his charge to the jury. The gentlemen of the jury, in conclusion... Uh, let me advise you, there are three possible verdicts you may return under the present indictment. Guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, or not guilty of any offence. I commend the accused to your most painstaking deliberations. The jury filed out. They stayed out for two long, weary hours. There was chatter in the courtroom always is. But even the gossip was subdued. Everybody waited. Waited. But it seems perfectly incredible. A murder trial, and I've been in on it since the beginning. Well, I do hope the judge wasn't as much against her as he seemed to be. Well, it's really too exciting for words. I've had more dinner invitations because I know Viv. Oh, well, after all, the poor girl might be hanged, you know. 
grisly thought. Well, for my part, even if she gets up, there'll be one advantage. She'll never be my neighbor again, and that will be an improvement, I'd say. And at long last, the waiting was over. The prisoner arose in the dock, the judge's request. The foreman of the jury faced the prisoner in the court. The age-old formula was intoned by the clerk. Members of the jury, have you agreed upon a verdict? We have. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of murder? Not guilty. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of manslaughter? Not guilty. Yet, despite that verdict, the little blue 22 can be seen today among the exhibits in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. Yes, they let Vivian Davis go free. In many minds, the question was, and still is, did Vivian Davis get away with murder? Frankly, I don't believe anyone gets away with murder. Murder stays with a killer, twisting mind and heart and soul, even in the unsuspected and therefore unsolved cases. Where Vivian Davis was concerned, perhaps the real crime was insecurity and the kind of violent jealousy that grows from fear. I don't know. That's for the psychologists, not for you and I to decide. Meanwhile, the little blue 22 remains in its customary place in Scotland Yard, in the Black Museum. And now, until we meet again next time, in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obediently yours. Black Museum, starring Orson Welles, is presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Radio Attractions. The program is written by Ara Marion, with original music composed and conducted by Sidney Torch, produced by Harry Allen Towers. drive my Pontiac to town in a few minutes to see the latest Paris gowns. 
Is this new Pontiac equipped with freewheeling? Naturally. Has it synchro silent second? Of course. Is the body by Fisher? Certainly. Well, apparently Pontiac has all the latest developments of automotive engineering. Absolutely. That is why Pontiac is today the chief of values. Good evening, friends of the creaking door. This is your host to welcome you into the inner sanctum. Come in, come in. Ah, I always feel lighthearted in weather like this. So perhaps we ought to have a little poetry before we begin. An Arab girl named Yuhim was lied to by her husband, Menuhim. For this little trifle, she shot him with a rifle. And now she can see right through him. <laughs> And now, if your scalpels are sharpened and ready, we will proceed with the business of the evening. Tonight, we're going to do a little study in terror. Have you ever been alone with fear? Alone in the night and frightened? Well, here is our star, Agnes Moorhead, in the role of Linda Dixon, who will tell us a tale of terror. By night. It was Friday night, and I think I was already a little nervous as I drove north into the mountains. I hadn't wanted to waste even an hour of my two-week vacation, so I'd had all my bags packed and the car waiting at the curb in front of my office building. Everything would have been all right if the fuel pump in my six-year-old car hadn't acted up. It took the mechanic almost two hours to get me going. So now I was driving through the night with 50 miles more to go, and I was tired and nervous and irritated. And then I heard the whistle in the distance. At first I couldn't place it. And then I remembered the state prison was somewhere in the vicinity. The whistle. It meant... It meant a prisoner had escaped. I reached over and turned on the radio. Maybe they were broadcasting something about it. Motorists are warned to be on the lookout for Lee Hartley, who escaped from the death cell at State Prison at 9.15 p.m. Tall, dark-haired, regular features, no distinguishing marks. Hartley is a confirmed killer. He is believed to be armed. Beware of Hartley. He would rather kill than eat. He would rather Police kill than eat? And that man was loose, perhaps waiting around the next bend in the road. Hartley was helped to escape from the outside by his sweetheart, Helen Hearn. A red-headed woman just as vicious as Hartley himself. It is thought that Hartley and the Hearn woman may have separated after the escape. All motorists are warned to beware of a dark-haired man and a red-haired woman alone or together. My hand was shaking a little as I turned off the radio. I looked in the car mirror and shivered. I, too, have red hair. <laughs> There was a storm coming on, and I was driving into it, and the night was black, and I felt small and lonely and frightened in the car. And then I saw them in the mirror, the headlights sweeping up behind me. A car. It had come out of nowhere. It was pulling alongside, cutting me off. I cowered behind the wheel and watched the door of that other car open. A man stepped out. Oh, and I breathed a sigh of relief. It was a state trooper. You're driving all alone, miss? Yes, officer. Sorry if I scared you. We're stopping all cars. Where are you headed for? Well, I'm going up to the lodge at Smuggler's Notch. That's near Mount Mansfield. You see, I started out late from the city, and I'm having motor trouble. Yeah, sure. Can I see your driver's license, please? Uh, my uh, driver's license? Uh, yes, of course. Here, I'm, I've got it somewhere in my purse. <laughs> I seem to be all fingers. It's that escaped prisoner, Hartley. How'd you know about him? I heard the prison whistle, and then it came over the radio about Hartley and his red-haired girlfriend. Hey, you've got red hair, too. <laughs> you don't think I'm that woman. Find that license yet? Oh, yes, I'm sure it's in here. There aren't so many things in this bag. Oh, here, here, I've got it. Here's my license. Thanks. Hmm. What time did you say you left the city? About five o'clock. It took you a long time to get up this far. Well, I told you I had motor trouble. Hmm, so you did. Okay, Miss Dixon, here's your license. Thank you. You can go ahead. Thank you. 
Oh, darn. There it goes again. More motor trouble. Oh, it's the same thing. The mechanic said it might happen again. Oh. Oh, oh it started. You want to get that fixed? First chance you get. Oh, it's too late. All the service stations are closed. Well, there's one that's open all night, about uh, two miles up the road. Uh, better oh. stop there. Bill Slater's place. He's a good mechanic. He'll fix you up. Tell him Joe Nesbitt sent you. Thanks, I will. And listen, Miss Dixon. Yes? You be careful. Don't stop to give anyone a lift, man or woman. Oh, don't worry. I won't. In a few minutes, I saw the lights of the station. I swung into the open space in front of the pumps and stopped. There was another car, a coupe, parked at the pump, but there was nobody in it. And I didn't see any attendant around either. I pressed the horn button. No one answered. Everything seemed so quiet. And suddenly ominous. I found myself shivering. I had a curious feeling that someone was watching me. I had to get away from there. Fast. Oh, oh the starter wouldn't work again. again. Oh, it won't start. Oh, it won't start. For a long time, I sat behind the wheel listening, listening for the sound of footsteps stealing up behind the car. But there were none. Then I could bear it no longer. I had to get out of the car. I had to see what was in that office. I opened the door of the car and stepped down on the gravel. Anybody in there? No answer. I clenched my fists and stepped inside. There on the floor at my feet lay the body of a man. His mechanic's jumper was stained red. And his throat was cut. How long I stood there, I'll never know. I was petrified. Unable to move, unable to take my eyes from the body. What's that? must have been hiding somewhere upstairs. I must get away. But how? My car won't run. That other car, the coupe. The coupe, I could jump into that, yes. Yes. Oh, if I can reach that coupe before he comes down. Anything wrong, sister? Oh, too late. Anything uh, I can do for you, sister? Yes. Yes, it, it, it's my car. It, it won't start. I, I, I thought someone here might help me. Sorry. There doesn't seem to be anybody around. That's my coupe over there. I stopped for gas and no one came out, so I went in and looked around. But did, did you find anybody? There isn't a living soul in there. Oh. You, uh, you look kind of tired. No, 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 I'm all right. My name is Taylor. John Taylor. Uh, I'm Linda Dixon. Linda Dixon, hmm? Glad to know you. You traveling far tonight? I'm going to Mount Mansfield. To the largest smuggler's notch. They're, they're, they're expecting me. Well, what do you know about that? What? Mount Mansfield is the place I'm heading for, too. Isn't that a coincidence? I, I'm sure it is. And your car won't run, hmm? I'll tell you what. We'll put your baggage in my car and I'll give you a lift to Mount Mansfield. You can send for your car in the morning. No. I'll have your bag switched in the jeep. Please, no, I'd rather not. There I... you are. Ah, all switched. Oh. Come on. Get in here. <laughs> Thank you.
drove away into the night, leaving behind us the dead man in the service station. It looks as if Linda Dixon's got herself into an awful jam. And believe me, she's shaking like jelly. <laughs> uh, let's see how our star Agnes Moorhead in the role of Linda Dixon is making out. All alone in the car with a strange man. But after all, she shouldn't be too scared of him. He's just a felon who needs a friend. I sat stiff and tense beside the man who called himself John Taylor. He had both hands on the wheel and he stared out through the windshield. My eyes focused on something on his right hand. It was a stain, a small stain, but it was wet and red. I couldn't take my eyes off it. What are you looking at? Oh, oh, oh nothing, nothing at all. I think I'll turn on the radio. Did you know there's been a jailbreak? Hartley is five foot ten. Very dark hair. Don't be fooled by his pleasant manner. He is a killer by instinct. A killer by he instinct? Is a killer by I look at the man beside and me. And very dangerous. He is accompanied by Helen Hearn. Helen Hearn is a clever and dangerous woman. Five foot three, red hair, very pretty. I caught Taylor looking at me out of the corner of his eye. What are you looking at? At your hair. It's red. There was a streak of lightning, and looking out of the rain-swept window, I glimpsed a signpost. The lightning illuminated the sign, and my heart skipped a beat at what I saw. That sign we just passed. What about it? It said Barrington ahead. We're going the wrong way. We should be on the Mansfield Road, not the Barrington Road. That's funny. I must have taken the wrong turn. Well, aren't you going to turn back? Sure. Whatever you say. We'll turn right around and go back. Hello? Oh. We're in the ditch. In the ditch? Oh. No good. She won't budge. Well, looks like we're stuck here for the night. I... I think I'd better get out and walk. Perhaps there's a house nearby. Walk? In this weather? I, I don't mind the weather. Really, I don't. You can't walk in this storm. You're staying right here until I get the car out of the ditch. I've got some tools in the trunk compartment. You stay put. I heard him open the trunk in the back. I listened for further sounds, but there was nothing. I didn't hear him moving back there. I didn't hear any tools. I had to find out what he was doing. Slowly, carefully, I got my door open. I stepped out into the rain and sneaked back toward the rear. I saw him there, not moving in front of the open trunk compartment, bending over with a flashlight in his hand. The ray of light was focused on something curled up inside. It wasn't baggage or tools. It was a woman's body. Just then he saw me. He snapped the flashlight off, but not before I caught a glimpse of red hair. Then I, I must have fainted. When I came to, I found myself seated inside the car again. The storm was over. The night was quiet. Ah, oh, so you're awake again. I... I don't feel well. Is it because of what's in the trunk compartment? Oh, she's dead. I told you not to get out of the car. What are you going to do with me? What do you think? They say that when a person loses all hope, he subconsciously seeks refuge in sleep. That's what must have happened to me. I must have dozed, or perhaps I fainted. I don't know. 
but I awoke with a start at the sound of brakes. I sat up straight and saw that we had stopped in front of a small fieldstone house. Why are we stopping here? I'm out of gas. Oh. Come on. We're going in. The sign on the door said, Roger Bryce, M.D. A doctor's house. I began to feel a spark of hope. There might be a chance. I'll do the talking. Is that clear? Yes. There's the bell. He must be awake. There's a light in the parlor. How do you do? Oh, good evening. Dr. Bryce? Yes. Can I help you? I'm terribly sorry to disturb you, Doctor, but my sister and I were heading for Mansfield, and we seem to have gotten lost. And we're out of gas. His sister? He was passing us off as brother and sister. Now I knew why he hadn't cut my throat as he had that service station man's. He was carrying me for protection. I was his passport through the police cordon. His sister. I'm afraid I can't be of much help to you. I'm seven miles from the nearest town, and I haven't any spare gasoline. But come in, won't you? Well, yes, thank you, we will. I wonder if I could offer you my hospitality for the night. Oh, that would be imposing. Not at all. I have two rooms that aren't being used. Well, really... Oh, come, come, I insist. I had hoped for a chance to talk to Dr. Bryce alone, just a word to warn him. But Taylor never left us alone for a minute. He insisted on coming into my room to make sure, he said, that it was comfortable enough for me. Then he took the doctor by the arm and went out with him. Good night, sis. And uh, sweet dreams. I was alone, free of the presence of John Taylor. I had another lease on life. I lay down on the bed, but I didn't dare close my eyes. I waited, my heart pounding to give them both a chance to retire. And I slipped off my shoes and got off the bed in my stocking feet. I stole across the room and inched my door open. Slowly, carefully, I stepped out into the corridor and turned right toward the doctor's room. What's the matter, sister? <laughs> Sleepwalking? <gasps> you... Weren't thinking of going anywhere, sister, were you? I, 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 I wanted a drink of water. A drink of water, hmm? Yeah. Hmm. In case you didn't know it, there's a water pitcher on your dresser. Oh, well, I, I didn't see it. Good night, sister. I turned around and went back into my room. It was no use. I lay down on the bed. How long I lay there, I don't know. Perhaps I slept. Perhaps not, but I heard that slight creak as my door began to inch open. The blood chilled in my veins. Vaguely, I saw the outline of the hand and the knife it held. I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. Slowly, he came toward the bed. Now he stands over me. He raises the knife. <laughs> I screamed and rolled over on the bed just as the knife slashed down. I rolled off the bed and cowered in the corner. That horrible figure came around the bed after me with a knife upraised. Help! Dr. Bryce! Help me! Help me! While I cowered there in the corner, they fought all over the room in the dark. I had no strength to move, to think, not even to hope. All the life seemed to have gone dead in my veins. And then... Then it was over. But who... Who had won? In the dark, I strained my eyes to see. Doctor? Dr. Bryce? Is that you? <laughs> no, Linda... It isn't, Dr. Bryce. It's... It's I. John Taylor. It was John Taylor standing there at the light switch. And on the floor lay Dr. Bryce, unconscious, with a long gash in his head. I... I had to hit him with a... a water pitcher. My eyes swung back to Dr. Bryce. 
And I saw the knife still gripped in his right hand. That's Hartley, Linda. What? Lee Hartley, the killer. Is he? It was he who came in here with the knife? Right. I was down the cellar just now. The real Dr. Bryce is down there, dead. Oh. This guy posed as Bryce when we came to the house. Oh, then... Then you... You're not Hartley. <laughs> oh, what a situation. Oh. All the time you thought I was Lee Hartley, and oh. I thought you were Helen Hearn, on account of your red hair. Oh, but that... But the body of that red-haired woman... That's Helen Hearn. This guy must have killed her back at the service station and stuffed her body in my trunk compartment while I was inside. That all happened last summer. In time, I think I'll manage to forget that night of terror. But it won't be soon. Sometimes in the night, I dream that I see that awful figure with the knife poised above my throat. And I, I wake up screaming. But then John takes me in his arms and holds me tight and tells me that everything is all right. You see, I'm Mrs. John Taylor now. Well, what do you know? A happy ending. As for Mr. Hartley, that pleasant killer, he got what he deserved. Some people never know when they're well off. He should have stayed in jail. Where they never raise your rent. Where they make no charge for meals. Or for electric current. Mm. <laughs> you see, when you're in jail, everything is free. Except you. <laughs> friends, it's time once again to close that creaking door. Until next week at the same time when we'll be back with a little hunk of horror. <laughs> You'll be sure to listen, won't you? Until next week, then. Good night. Pleasant dreams. Sanctum has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. <laughs>